0: First Samuel chapter 19. There's a Christian man once named Frederick Nolan, and he was fleeing for his life in North Africa. And he was fleeing from just terrible and severe persecution. And the story goes that as he was being chased by his enemies that Nolan just became utterly exhausted. He couldn't go on any further. And so he ducked into a small cave. He still assumed that his enemies would find him, but he was just spent. He, he had no more energy. He could not run any longer, and so he sat in that cave awaiting his death. But from inside the cave, he noticed that a spider began to weave an intricate web at the mouth of the cave. And by the time the enemies arrived, the spider's web had taken up the entire entrance to the cave, And Nolan remained safe because his enemies thought and assumed that he could not be in the cave, otherwise the spider's web would have been broken. And Nolan later wrote, where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. And where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. Last chapter in 1 Samuel, in chapter 18, we saw Saul's unrestrained envy of David just produce these murderous intentions And yet, so far, God has delivered David. And we'll see that again this morning. We'll see that Saul's intentions and and his sins, they escalate. But God continues to deliver David from Saul. So look at verse 1. We'll see the author doesn't waste any time by reminding us of Saul and his intent. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. And we'll stop there for a minute and talk about this, because if you remember last chapter, how things unfolded. First, when Saul became envious and hateful towards David, he tried to end David's life personally. Twice he threw a spear at David, in the royal courtroom there in his house. Uh, twice he missed. But it's very possible that only Saul and David were present when that happened. Saul had been seized by that evil spirit. Perhaps everybody had left the room so that he could just—he and David could be in there and David could play and soothe him. And we know that Saul was just overwhelmed with his hatred and he tried to kill David. So I don't think anyone else knew of Saul's intent right then. Even if they did, I'm sure Saul blamed it on his mental state at that time and said, I really didn't mean harm to David. I just that evil spirit got the best of me and it's okay. I love David. You know that. Those personal attempts didn't work, and so Saul then secretly plotted to have David killed. He pushed David to, to prove his bravery in battle, hoping that the Philistines would, would get him. He tried to use his daughter's hand in marriage as kind of a carrot in front of the horse. He even used David's loyalty to God against him, saying, You need to go forth and fight the Lord's battles. It's pretty low when you use somebody's faithfulness and loyalty to God to try and harm them. But that's what Saul did later. We know he failed again when he used uh, Michal, his youngest daughter. And he thought, I will, I'll, I'll set them up. Michal and David can be married, and Michal can be a snare to David, both with pushing him to fight the Philistines, but also because Michal was an idol worshiper. And perhaps she could turn David's heart from God and kind of ensnare him that way and, and trap him that way. But we know that failed too. And so personal attempts have failed, secret plots have failed, and so now he just quits pretending. Saul calls Jonathan, his oldest son, he calls his servants, he drops all pretenses, and he says, we need to kill David. This is no longer an internal evil within Saul. It's no longer a private sin, if we can say it that way. It has worked its way out. That's what sin will do in your life if you do not confess it and repent of it. It will grow. It will escalate. It will come out. If you have some secret, personal, internal sin, some pet sin in your life that you think you can control, some sin that you think you can keep locked away, You're sadly mistaken. Sin is like a plant. It will grow if you water it, even if you water it in secret. It will grow. Your sin will find you out. The Scriptures say, sin must be plucked up by the roots. That's not what happened in Saul's life. His internal hatred and envy of David, these private things that he had against David, have now grown into shameful, public, and and really just ridiculous levels. And I say ridiculous because the thought of killing David is absolutely ridiculous. Who is David in Israel at this time? He is your best soldier. He's your best leader. He's the man who killed Goliath. He's the best musician, the only one who can help Saul when the evil spirit torments him, and you want to kill that man. That's absurd. But sin will lead you to make terrible decisions. It will. We see that in Saul's life, and so at this point now, he doesn't care who knows it. He calls Jonathan and his men together and says, Boys, we've got to kill David. But Jonathan, in verse 2 through 5, Jonathan, who Saul's oldest son, he stands up on David's behalf. Look at verse 2 through 5. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, or hide yourself, watch yourself, And abide in a secret place and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art. And I will commune with my father of thee, or about thee. And what I see, that I will tell thee. And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father. He said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to theeward, Very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and didst rejoice. Wherefore uh, wherefore then wilt thou sin, uh, sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? You know, really, in Saul's plotting and planning, Jonathan has the most to gain from David being killed. Because Jonathan is Saul's oldest son, and so he's next in line to be king. And yet, Jonathan doesn't care at all about that. He's not arrogant. He's not power-hungry. He is humble, and he sees God's hand at work in David's life. He understands it's God's will for David to be the next king and not himself. And we see in Jonathan just someone who is completely opposite of his father. Saul hates David and wants to kill him so that he can remain in control. Jonathan wants David to be in control because God wants David to be in control. Jonathan is humble and loves David. We know that he and David had that extremely close friendship. We saw that in a chapter or so ago. They made a covenant together. They loved each other so much. And so when you're Jonathan you hear your dad say, we need to kill David, how are you feeling? I think you're heartbroken, you're, you're confused, you're scared, all of those emotions. You're worried about David. And so Jonathan warns David. He says, my dad wants to kill you. You need to hide until I can find out some more information. And I'll tell you everything I find out. And that's what, uh, that's what happens. Jonathan steps up for David. And what's really interesting to me about that is, do you remember that one time people had to step up and save Jonathan's life from Saul? Several chapters ago... When they were fighting against the Philistines, Saul made that rash and ridiculous vow that no soldier should eat until until we finish the battle. Well, Jonathan didn't hear that. And as they're walking around, he picks up some honey and eats a little honey and keeps fighting. And under that oath, under that vow, Jonathan should have died because of Saul's rash vow. But the people stood up and rescued Jonathan from his dad. And now Jonathan is stepping up and rescuing David from his dad. Saul just leaves a, a wake of destruction behind him with his bad decisions and his sinfulness and his, his unwillingness to repent. But we can learn a lot about dealing with sin and, and handling conflict by the way that Jonathan handled this with his dad. And there's a couple things that I want you to notice about how Jonathan did this. Number one, he spoke the truth. And that seems very simple and very elementary but he told the truth. He told the truth about David. He's a hero. He's loyal to you. He's only been good to you. He's the one that killed Goliath. And you saw it and you rejoiced, Dad. He doesn't have to plot or scheme or make anything up or say anything that's not true. He simply reminds Saul of the truth. But he also told the truth that killing David would be a sin. He stands up to his own father who is the king and he says, Dad, what you're planning is wrong. This is a sin. I admire Jonathan's courage for standing up and saying that to his father. When dealing with sin, when dealing with sinners, when dealing with conflict, always be truthful. And truth comes from the Word of God. Not from man, not from culture, not from society. If God's Word condemns something as wicked, then it's wicked. It doesn't matter what society thinks about it. And if we refuse to say that sin is wrong, then we're not being truthful. But there is a godly spirit that we can have when we oppose sin. Calling sin, sin, and saying that it's wicked doesn't mean that, that you're raving and foaming at the mouth and throwing things. Jonathan doesn't do that here. And that's the second thing that I want to point out is that I, I see in Jonathan here a calm, humble, and meek spirit. He remained calm when he spoke to his father. There are no cutting words here. There are no harsh words. There are no uh, you know, put-downs or cut-downs or whatever you want to call it. Jonathan doesn't lose his temper. This doesn't escalate into a shouting match. He exhibits meekness, which means he doesn't get trampled on. He does stand up for the truth, but he does it in a very humble way. He does it in a way that, that's not overbearing or pompous. He speaks the truth in love, humbly, and lets God handle the rest. There's a proverb. It's one of my favorite proverbs. And you probably heard it. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think Jonathan is the epitome of that proverb here. He goes to his father with a soft answer. It's truth! And it does a lot of good. And notice verse 6 and 7. God used Jonathan, Saul's oldest son, to deliver David and spare his life. Verse 6 and 7, And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan. Do you think it would have been that easy to listen to Jonathan if he came in yelling and screaming and throwing things? And No. He just came to his dad calmly, humbly, and told him the truth. The middle of verse 6 there, And Saul swear, As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all those things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Saul makes another oath here. He swears again, as the Lord lives, he will not be slain. And in a strange way, that promise is actually fulfilled. But not because of Saul. Saul will not kill David. It does not happen. But it's not because he doesn't try again. He makes this promise, and again, in a a strange way, it's fulfilled. But it's not because of Saul's repentance. It's because of God's protection, because of God's deliverance. The evil intent that Saul had may have subsided a little bit with Jonathan's words, but it's not gone. It's not eradicated. It'll grow again, and we'll see in just a verse or so. He's going to be right back at it, hating David and trying to kill him again. But for a time... David seems to be back in Saul's good graces. He's back in the court, performing his duties, maybe playing music and leading the army. And you look at verse 8, that's what happens. Verse 8, and there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. Uh oh. Every other time David's been successful in battle, what's happened with Saul? He is envious of that success, and he hates David for that success. And so now, David has gone out again, led the army in battle. They were so successful that the Philistines retreated. And that that success is going to throw gas on the fire of Saul's envy yet again. Look at verse 9 and 10. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul, as he sat in his house with his javelin or his spear in his hand... And David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smoked the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Just as we saw last chapter, the evil spirit torments Saul and comes upon him immediately following David's success immediately when he becomes envious of that. And that's not an accident. It's a lesson for us about the dangers of envy. Do not envy the success of others, but be thankful and content with what God has given you. Envy will eat you up. In verse 9, there's this amazing contrast between Saul and David. It's hard to miss, and we see it by, by what's in their hands in Saul's hand he is sitting in his living room in his house and he's got his spear in his hand who does that how many of you sit in your living room just holding a loaded shotgun how troubled do you have to be how anxious and how how stressed and how how paranoid he's sitting in his room loaded weapon but David, in his hand, is a harp. He's faithfully and skillfully playing his music to help soothe Saul, a man who's tried multiple times to take his life. I'm sure David was alert, though, and aware. He's playing for a man who's got his spear ready at any moment. The difference between Saul and David is so, so great. It's the difference between one man who's trusting God and another man who's not. One man who is allowing sin to grow and another man who's doing his best to humbly serve God. And so once more, Saul's anger bursts forth. He throws his spirit at David again, but once again David sees it coming. He dodges it. He slips away, however that worked. And he escapes Saul's house, eventually will escape even more that night. And first, though, he returns home. And we're told more details about how he ultimately escaped that night. Look at verse 11 through 17. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went, out, uh, he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image And laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the messengers were come in, in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's, goat's hair for his bolster. And Saul said unto Michal, Why hast thou deceived me so and sent away mine enemy? that he has escaped. And Mikal answered Saul, He said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? This time after Saul's spear missed, he's even more determined than ever. He's not going to let it go. And so he sends men to David's house that night to lie in wait, to ambush him, to kill him in the morning. But Mikal, David's wife, who is Saul's youngest daughter, she's aware of this. Uh, She warns David. She says, David, you need to sneak out and go tonight or tomorrow they'll, they'll get you. You'll be dead in the morning if you don't get out tonight. And so through some unguarded and unwatched window, David is able to, to slip out unnoticed. But he still needs some time, right? And so Macaul comes up with this, this ruse to, to buy David some time to delay Saul's men from maybe chasing after him. And so she took some things on hand and made it look like David was lying under some covers, even though it wasn't him. Have you ever done that? you ever taken pillows or something and you know you tried to arrange them under the covers to trick somebody to make it look like you're sleeping and maybe you scare them like you're playing hide-and-seek or something and so you want them to think that's you? That's kind of what Mikal does here uh, with, uh, to Saul's men and how she deceives them. What she uses, though, is very curious. This word image that we see here, in verse 13, this image that she took refers to a household idol. It was a false god. It was probably made of wood and often these idols were very small. Very small and portable. But Macau owned an idol that is so big that it could be mistaken for a man. That's a big idol. And again, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, this is probably something that was on Saul's mind when he thought that, hey, Macau can be a snare to David. Saul knew the kind of person Macau was. Saul knew that, that she was an idol worshiper. Perhaps she could be a spiritual snare to David, if nothing else. And so Macau takes her false god, covers it up with one of David's robes, uses some goat hair at the end to make it look like a man's head just barely sticking out from under the covers, you know. And it looked like a man was sick at his bedside. And it worked to perfection. She came when Saul's men came in and she said he's sick and they turned around and left, which is one of the most hilarious things to me. If you're sent to kill a man, what does it matter if he's sick? I don't know if Saul had the brightest men in Israel working for him or not, but... When they came back to Saul, and they said, well, we're sick. We sick. Couldn't, we couldn't get him. He said, Just bring him in the bed and bring him to me, and I'll do it myself. You can't get good help in Israel these days. And so the men go back to David's house, and we know they don't find David. And I love in verse 16 uh, the way the author uses the word behold, like it's a surprise. When the messengers would come in, Behold, there was an image in the bed. It wasn't David in there after all. It was an image, which we knew that, but it it was a surprise to them. One author says, Returning to David's house, the men who entered did not find in the bed one who was about to die. Instead, they found one who had never lived. Just a piece of wood there. It was a false god who had no life whatsoever within it. Well, this wasn't what we thought was under the covers. And Saul is obviously furious with Macau, And Macau lied to Saul, probably fearing for her own life, what her dad might do to her for helping David. And she told Saul that David threatened my life. He told me he would kill me if I didn't help, which is not true. David didn't say that to her, but it is an accurate record of what she told Saul, probably because she was fearing for her own life. And at this point now, there's no telling how far David is away. There's no telling where he went. And so Saul's very own daughter has tricked her father's men and helped David escape. And not only that, but the irony here is that she used the very idol that Saul hoped would snare David to trick Saul's men to let David get away. Isn't that fascinating? And so Saul's plan completely backfired. Sin will backfire on you. It will. Do not ever think in your life that you can harness or control sin. It will lead you to places you don't want to go. It will create problems in your life you don't want to face. It will not work in your favor. You don't become sin's master. Sin becomes your master. So don't water it. Even in secret, don't water it. Don't play with it. Pluck it up by the roots with the Lord's help, and with the Lord's help, be a servant of righteousness. If you're David at this point, though, where do you go? If you go to Bethlehem and you go home, that's a little too obvious, and you're putting your whole father's house in danger. So where do you find help? Look at verse 18. So David fled and escaped and came to Samuel. I love that. He came to Samuel. He came to Samuel to Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naoth. David turned to Samuel. He went to God's man. He went to God's prophet. He went to the man who spread God's word throughout Israel. He went to the man who anointed him as the next king. The man who had left Saul when God rejected Saul as king. If there was anybody to turn to at that moment, it was Samuel. And since Samuel is God's prophet and God's man, David is ultimately and essentially turning to God. Always, always, always turn to God in times of need. Always. Turn to Him in prayer turn to him in worship, turn to him through reading his word and studying it, turn to him through through his people and fellowship. That's what David did. He turned to God. Sometimes in life, God delivers us through trials in very unexpected ways. Maybe he uses a spider's web like he did with Frederick Nolan in the life of David He used two members of Saul's very own family to deliver David from Saul. And you may have seen the Lord work like that in your life. Or maybe through unexpected ways, He's delivered you through things. And there's there's two things that that teaches us. And first is always trust God even when we don't understand. Even when times are tough, even when life is stacked against you, even during the toughest moments of your life, trust God. You may be able to look back one day and see how God delivered you in a way that you never imagined. David was able to do that in his life. In fact, David wrote a song about that night. I'm going to read it here in just a second. It's Psalm 59. You won't hear any mention in David's psalm about Macau's trickery. You won't hear any mention about escaping out a window. You won't hear any mention, definitely, of a household idol. All of those things were involved in David's escape. But it was the Lord who rescued him. David knew that, and his trust was in the Lord. It's Psalm 59. Listen to what David said about that night. I'm reading from the ESV. Psalm 59, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, which is probably a tune, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And here's what David said. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us? But you, O oh Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. That's the song that David wrote, perhaps on that very night, as a prayer, perhaps looking back on how he felt that night and how God delivered him. Always trust the Lord and look to Him. And lastly, and it's related, do not allow the presence of trials in your life to shake your faith in God. Trials and troubles do not necessarily mean that you've done something wrong or that God is out to get you. Are there there consequences for sin? Sure. Does God discipline His children as a loving Father? Sure. But every trial is not a consequence of sin and does not mean that God isn't pleased with you. During the time that Job lived on earth, the Bible says that he was the most righteous man that lived. And yet he suffered greatly. But it wasn't because of his sin. In David's life, which we've seen, the Bible Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And we've already known or, or read of him facing a lion, a bear, a giant, and a raving king trying to kill him. And he's not even 30 years old yet. You really want to be David? None of that was because of David's sin. In fact, he said it in Psalm 59, they're out to get me for nothing that I've done. But God used those trials to grow those men, to mature them, to teach them, to make them stronger. And God can do the same thing in your life as well. But the greatest example that I can give about an individual suffering, yet it not being because of his sin, is Jesus Christ. He suffered. He was beaten. He was bloodied. He was crucified. And it was not because of his sin because he didn't have any. It was because of my sin. And it was because of your sin. Jesus Christ will, willingly took our place. He willingly took our punishment. And that is the amazing way that God delivers us from sin. He is able to deliver thee. We sang earlier. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never asked for God's mercy and forgiveness, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I pray that you'll do that this morning. Jesus Christ is proof of God's remarkable ability to deliver. Will you trust Him? Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth therein and the the lessons that we learn from it. Help us to apply it to our lives, to, to just trust You every day. And we thank you so much for Jesus, Lord, and what he did for us. We ask forgiveness of our sins in his name. Amen.